Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. Eh. Sorry, David, but the whole beauty and the moonlight excuse doesn't fly. Of course, it's a very tempting excuse to find out why, but what's wrong with it. Join us as we discuss Lesson 24, Create in Me a Clean Heart. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back for another week's study of the Old Testament. I'm Mark Holt, so grateful to be here with you. And I hear from a few of you, a number of you, uh, from from week to week, to let me know that you're listening. Uh, I wish I had more questions I could share. And the reason I bring up questions every week and say, uh, email me here at the show at gt at gospeltoctrine.com is because... My experience, my learning on how to teach the Old Testament was done as a gospel doctrine teacher. And in that setting, a large part of our class time was taken up in discussion. And a big part of my preparation was coming up with questions that would make people think. And my favorite kind of question was one that had no right answer. And so I'm going to try to... um, I don't have a ton of them today, but I'm going to try to incorporate more of those in my podcasts to engage you at home so that you can uh, email me in your your interpretation or your answer for that question, your idea of what the right answer might be. And if you have a, a good question that doesn't have a right answer, I'd love to read it on the air. I would, the, your emails would I would suggest that those would be sort of our substitute for having a class discussion. And I, that's why I would welcome them so much. And that's why I keep bringing them up. I, I do know that a number of you are enjoying the podcast and you're either using it in your own life or you're using it to prepare your lessons. And I'm so grateful for that. And I also want to engage you in the kind of discussion that we would have if we were all together. That would be my... Uh, that would be the fulfillment of uh, a dream for me, which would be that we were we were supporting each other and getting excited about the Old Testament. Um, and also, uh, for those of you who, who are listening week after week, who are enjoying the podcast, to use Book of Mormon language, what have you against leaving a five-star review on iTunes? And uh, what have you... What hast thou against liking our Facebook page? Uh, I, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but I, I would like to get the word out more about the podcast because uh, every time I talk to it in person with someone, talk, to, talk about it in person with someone, they're very surprised and they're excited about it, and it seems like this is something that people are hungering for. So I, I want the word to spread, not because um, I want more people to listen to me, but because I really am excited about everything that I teach. And I, and I did this, I started this podcast because I think as a, as a church, we focus 
we don't put enough focus on spiritual, um, sorry, on scriptural scholarship. And I would like to see that change. And if you, if you feel the same way, this is one way we can change it, is by listening to these kinds of things and sharing them with each other. Well, enough about that. Uh, today, the lesson is create in me a clean heart. This is actually, I, I was going to say that's the final lesson on David. We've already had two lessons on David. But the truth is next week we are covering Psalms. So David gets about as much coverage in our curriculum as Isaiah does, which is four lessons. And the truth is David is a fascinating character. Um, there's not much biographically about David next week, but we've, we've covered the early parts of his life, um, how David was chosen by Samuel, how he was faithful in fighting Goliath. And this, is, this lesson actually just covers his sin with Bathsheba as it is written in the church's manual. We're going we're gonna to talk more about the second half of David's life. A little more than half of David's life actually is covered in this, um, well, is what I'm going to cover in this lesson. And that is the part of his life that occurs after he becomes king. So keep in mind as, we t as we're talking, everything that goes before this, which is uh, the, the immense faith that he showed as a young shepherd, how he and, and as I mentioned, uh, how he fought the lion and the bear before we even met David. And that prepared him to fight, to have the faith to fight Goliath. How he treated Jonathan, how he treated Saul, the profound respect he had for the Lord's anointed. How he treated and was treated by Abigail. His whole life was marked by faithfulness. He was a giant of the Lord. He was a prophet king and spoke regularly with God and had God speak regularly back in plain plain words, from what we can understand, at least, in the scriptures. Since we last, since the last podcast, or since the events we covered last podcast, David has conquered Jerusalem, become king. And David has chosen, as the captain of his armies, even before he became king, he was using Joab as his sort of right-hand man, his military leader. And Joab, is, David knows, David well knows, that Joab is a violent man, and he learns that when he becomes king that Joab will stop at nothing. Now, Saul's right-hand man was named Abner, and David said to him, you don't have to kill Abner. We're, um, even though Abner didn't support David's ascension to the throne, David had been anointed king, but it took actually seven years for him to unite the tribes of Israel behind him. And Abner, after Saul's death, tried to choose one of Saul's other sons to follow. He felt like this dynasty, Saul's dynasty, should continue. And because they'd fought against him for so long, Joab was angry. And when they finally uh, triumphed, Joab killed Abner. And David was upset by this. But by that, he knew that Joab was a bloodthirsty man, you might say, somebody who wouldn't who wouldn't flinch from violence and even uh, illicit violence. Nevertheless, he Joab is a faithful second in command, and he's very loyal. He's loyal to David throughout his life, and 
uh, he helps David. So when David becomes king, he helps David conquer Jerusalem. And this story of of David, incidentally, is spread out throughout the book of King, the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. So the the books of Samuel are almost uh, are almost sequential with the books of Kings, and then Chronicles has another version, almost like the uh, the plates of Lehi and the plates of Nephi. That we that we don't have, but they're they're parallel accounts of the same thing, focusing on different types of events. So the books of Chronicles also contain an account of some of the things we'll we'll cover today, and uh, it talks a little bit about how David conquers the Jebusites. And one of the things that David was curious about was, hey, I'm 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 living here in luxury in Jerusalem. I've made this my new capital. And I've also, one of the early things that David did was he relocated the tabernacle into Jerusalem. It was David that did that. And he's thinking to himself, the Lord, the Lord's house, the Lord is living in a tent. And here I am living in a house of cedars. And cedar was a very luxurious wood. It was very expensive in, in Israel because it had to be imported from Lebanon. And he thought, I, I want to build the Lord a house. So he inquired of Nathan, the prophet. And this is when Nathan gives David his own covenant. Now, we've heard of the Abrahamic covenant, and it was renewed with Isaac and Jacob. Um, Moses obviously received covenants for his entire people from God. Lehi received covenants. Joseph received covenants. Adam received covenants. Noah received covenants. But it's a very select group. Other than that, there aren't a whole lot of people. Enoch received covenants. There aren't a whole lot of people who could say, I've received a covenant for my whole my whole house, my whole progeny, my seed after me. And David is one of those people. So it's uh, David receives a covenant that we don't talk about that much. And this book is or this covenant is referred to in in First Chronicles. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And what God says is, David, I don't want you to build me a house. I will build you a house. And thy seed that shall come after me, he will build me a house. Now, Jews would say, God is talking about Solomon. And Solomon does, in fact, build the temple. And David is told, you're not going to build the temple. Much like Moses is told, you're not going to enter the promised land. You you got everything ready. It's the job of he who comes after you to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. So from a Jewish perspective, David, no, it's not your job to build me a temple. Your son will build me a temple. But from a Christian perspective, it's obvious that God is talking to David about Christ who will come through David's lineage because he says, you, you don't build me a house, I will build you a house. Thy seed that shall come after thee, he will build me a house, and I will establish his house forever, and his kingdom shall never end. Well, obviously Solomon's kingdom, in fact, David's, uh, David's kingdom did last until his house did continue, his line did continue in the kingship until Israel was conquered by the Babylonians. And that's fine, but it didn't continue forever. And the Davidic covenant is um, a promise of almost like the Book of Mormon covenant, inasmuch as ye keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. 
it's it's saying as long as you you remember me above other gods and keep the the Ten Commandments basically or the law as given to Moses, if you can remember me and be faithful to me, then I will never forget you either. I will always protect you, and you shall be established. You will have my you will have my might on your side. In fact, I think the Davidic covenant is important enough that we should probably read it together. So, uh, if you open your Old Testament to 1 Chronicles 17, you can start halfway through verse 10. Moreover, I will subdue thine enemies. First, the Lord says, uh, I'm not going to have you, you don't have to be moved anymore. But I have not commanded anyone to build me a house. And, and he continues here in verse 10. Moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee, the Lord will build thee an house. And it shall come to pass when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me an house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. So, Solomon is one, obviously one, because he says, from among thy sons, is obviously one fulfillment of that prophecy. But he doesn't establish Solomon's throne forevermore. So Christ is obviously another fulfillment of the, or the fulfillment of the second part of that prophecy. And that's the Davidic covenant. And in 1 Kings chapter 9, remember I said there are two parallel accounts. This is what Saul actually, or this is what uh, God actually says to Solomon. And he, much like Abrahamic covenant is restated to Abraham's children and grandchildren, uh, this is the Davidic covenant being repeated to Solomon. So we're now in 1 Kings 9, 4 through 7. He says to Solomon, If thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart, in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and wilt keep my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel, but if ye shall, if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. So it's a promise of God's holy protection, and it's very similar, as I said, to the Book of Mormon covenant. So this is just prelude to what's to come. It's a statement we're, we're trying to, I'm trying to reinforce in your minds how righteous David is. He has so much given to him. And then we have, now we, now we get to the lesson that we studied today, which begins in 2 Samuel 11. And it starts out, interestingly enough, it starts out talking about what David should be doing. My mission president once taught us a lesson about this. And 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it came to pass, after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. So the Am Ammonites were 
notorious enemies of David, and they had lied to him and betrayed him, and David owed them uh, some recompense, you might say. But instead of going against them to battle himself, and it even says here in verse 1, at the time when kings go forth to battle. So at the season when the crops weren't coming in, it made more sense to fight during that time when the men could be free and and them being away from their crops all growing season wouldn't destroy the economy of an entire nation. So the kings would go forth to battle during that time. And uh, it says that David sent Joab instead and his servants with him. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. So what my mission president said to us was, the first mistake David made was he, he wasn't where he should have been. Verse 2, it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Well, much has been made, and there have been many talks given on these verses, and second mistake David makes. First mistake, he wasn't where he should have been, and the second mistake was he was tempted, and he didn't have the wherewithal or the spiritual strength to get himself out of temptation. Instead, he stayed in temptation. David, unfortunately, so here he is. Uh, I, I would extrapolate from what my mission president said and say not only was David in the wrong city, but the question could be asked, what was he doing on his rooftop? I've, I've thought a little bit about why he, number one, why Bathsheba was bathing on her rooftop, and perhaps that was just the coolest place in her house. But she also might have known, she had to know that the king's house was nearby. And she might have known that she could be seen from David's balcony. And David might have known that people like to bathe on their rooftops. And therefore, he spent time on his rooftop. So I've wondered as I read this, as I've been preparing this, and as I've read this, how many times David went onto his rooftop. This probably wasn't the first time. And it said he was... He arose from off his bed. You know, a lot of times Satan will be able to insert thoughts that, w- that might cause us to have a, a disturbing dream or whatever, and we, we were awakened out of a sleep, and Satan might like to bring our minds back to the, the blessings that we don't have or the sins we haven't repented of or things we haven't made right, mistakes we've made, jobs we haven't yet finished, and puts this discontent in our hearts in the middle of the night. So David may have let Satan in in some way. These are all, obviously, speculations, but then been, the, the roof might be where he goes in order to, to deal with that sleeplessness. And um, it may be some, and it may be because he's up there looking out and he sees, oh, I can, I can see people bathing on the roof out here. Maybe one day there'll be an attractive woman out here for me to look at. Um. We also know that David was married, but that he had his eye open for more wives. Um, and this is a, you know, this is a tough subject because um, in the book of Jacob, in the book of Mormon, Jacob strongly rebukes all of the Nephites for having this kind of, this exact kind of outlook, which is uh, the thoughts of their hearts. Um in Jacob 2, Jacob says, verse 5, he says, 
Hearken unto me, and know by the and know that by the help of the all-powerful Creator of heaven and earth, I can tell you concerning your thoughts, how that ye are beginning to labor in sin. And it uh, talks, talks a little bit more about what's in his hearts in verse 6. It grieveth my soul, and causeth me to shrink with shame before the presence of my Maker, that I must testify unto you concerning the wickedness of your hearts. So, these these men in the the Nephite nation were having the same problem that David was, which is uh, they've they've multiplied the number of covenant partners, and and later we learn elsewhere in the scriptures, I should say, we learn that the the wives that David received, he received from God mostly, except for obviously Bathsheba, because she was already another man's wife. Nevertheless, there's danger. There's great danger in David having being married and yet having his eye open. And so we know that David was already married, for example, when he met Abigail. And later when he found out her husband died, he sent for her and asked her to become his wife. So that's one thing is David's eye is open. And David didn't go where he should have gone. And then he's up on the rooftop in the middle of the night perhaps while Satan is having a greater influence on him than normal. So these are all the things that, that David is allowing to come in. And, and we also know that David is a little bit prideful because um, we see the way, we start to see the way that he deals with people. He, then this was, this was Saul's problem, except Saul got there a lot faster and a lot worse. But, David has given some commands. He's taken some liberties that over the over the years that he's been in charge that show that he's not as humble as he once was. So he's in this position now where he looks down and sees a married woman, sends somebody, and here's so here's the story of David and Bathsheba. And I'm going to briefly tell the story of the rest of David's life. And then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about the problem with what David did. So David sees Bathsheba, he sends messengers to inquire after the woman, and she comes into him. Now we don't what we don't read is that David sent soldiers to go grab her and take her by force. So it seems to me that Bathsheba was a willing participant in what she and David did together. They have an affair. Bathsheba gets pregnant, so she sends to David and lets him know, I'm with child. But my husband's away. He's fighting with all the men that you sent up to fight against the Ammonites. Well, now David has a real problem. Because what he and Bathsheba had, had done is punishable by death. And it will be discovered. There's no way that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, there's no way that he will think it was his child because he's been gone. And... If it's discovered that Bathsheba's with child, she'll be stoned to death. And David would, in theory, be under the same condemnation, although because he's the king, uh, he probably, and because he presumably could go out and marry another woman anyway, and maybe Bathsheba wouldn't tell on him, we don't have a strong reason to believe necessarily that David would have suffered that penalty. But David knows that Bathsheba will suffer that penalty. So by his actions, David has condemned her to death. 
He wants to cover this sin up. So he sends for Uriah, hoping that Uriah, given a break from battle, will go home to his wife, and then when she later, when he later discovers she's with child, he'll think it's his child. But Uriah is loyal to his men. He, he feels such a kinship with, with the men in his unit that are away at the front that even though he is home in Jerusalem, he sleeps in the threshold of David. In other words, he doesn't go home. He, he feels like, am I gonna, why, how am I going to go home and bathe myself and be with my wife and enjoy all the comforts of home when my comrades are dying and fighting? And what, a, what an admirable quality. And it's Uriah, and, he, and David tries to get him drunk another night, tries to make it happen again, but Uriah doesn't go home the second night. And then David realizes he's too faithful to be prevailed on in, in this way. So it's Uriah's very faithfulness that gets him into the biggest trouble because then David decides that Uriah has to die. So he sends Uriah actually with the letter that carries his own death decree on it, and he tells Joab, he already knows that Joab is a violent man, and he says, Joab, I want you to put this guy in the heat of battle, and then I want you to withdraw from him so that he dies. And then Joab does just that. But the way that he does it is he sends a lot of the most valiant soldiers to, to mount a frontal attack on the walls of the Ammonite city. And when they are killed doing that, it was an obvious blunder. And so Joab sends a message back that says, when the king asks, and he tells the messenger, when the king asks you, why did you send so, so many valiant men against the city in such a reckless way? You should have known that they were vulnerable by attack from above. And Joab says, that's when you tell him that Uriah was also among those killed. And then David says, oh, okay, well, that's all right. Then it's, it's natural in battle for people to die. So David in order to cover his adultery, kills, he's murdered, now he's indirectly, but still, it's murder. He murders Uriah, and he causes Joab to commit murder. But there's, a, there's an interesting fact about modern jurisprudence. This probably wasn't true in ancient Israel. But in modern law, if you commit a crime, and as an inadvertent, result of your intent to commit the first crime, something bad happens, then you are guilty of the second one as if you intended to do it. So if you wanted to poison, if you poison a plate of food and you were hoping that that food would kill your wife and then your son comes in and eats that poisoned food, you're guilty of the murder of your son. And if 20 people die from eating that food, then you're guilty of 20 murders, even though you didn't intend to commit those other murders. Well, David set in motion a chain of events that would cause the death of all these valiant soldiers. And this is something I never hear talked about. They all talk about how David murdered Uriah. David also, if, if you look at it in modern terms, he also murdered every soldier that was killed in that attack that was necessary to get Uriah killed. And he also caused Joab to incur all this guilt on his soul for all those murders that he was an accomplice in. And then the more I thought about that, the more I realized those men that died, they might have been the means in winning the battle sooner, saving the lives of other soldiers. Who knows how many deaths 
David caused by trying to murder Uriah, just by trying to cover up his adultery. So this one sin led to so many other terrible things. Well, David, and so David is successful. David has hidden the fact of his adultery, or so he thinks. And then Nathan, the prophet, comes to him one day with an allegory. And Nathan says, hey, there's a certain man in Israel who had a, there's a poor man and a rich man, and the poor man had just one lamb, and the rich man had everything. And, and by this time, uh, David has called Bathsheba. She, her period of mourning has expired for Uriah. And he's called Bathsheba to be his wife, and she's come in unto him. And uh, Nathan is telling him the story, and he says, the, the rich man had a guest, and he didn't want to kill one of his own lambs, so he, he actually stole the, the lamb from the poor man and dressed it and fed it to his guests. And, da- and David is so upset, he's angry, and he says, the man who did this is going to die, and moreover, out of his flocks will be taken, he shall restore fourfold to the poor man. And, the, and it talks about how much the poor man loved the lamb and raised the lamb with his children and everything. And that's another thing. We don't actually hear about whether Uriah and Bathsheba already had children. They may have, which would have only exacerbated the sin of David. Um, in any case, Nathan's response is, Thou art the man. This exact thing that you decreed someone would die for, this is what you just did. And the Lord has given you everything. And if there had been anything he's given you, he, he raised you from being a shepherd to being the king of Israel. And if there had been anything you'd been lacking, he would have blessed you with that too. But instead you took the one thing you couldn't have, which is another man's wife, and then you killed him. And this is when David finally realizes, I can't, say, I can't hide this from the Lord. And Nathan gives him a curse and he says, the, the sword will not depart from your house. The curse I'm going to bring upon you, you, the sin that you committed, you did it secretly, but the curse I did upon, I'm going to bring upon you, I'm going to do it openly. And that's the curse that David has, is the sword will never depart from his house. Well, then we see it happening. The first thing that happens is David has two children. Tamar is a daughter and Absalom is a son. They both have the same mother. And then through another mother, he has a a son, Amnon. So half-brother and sister, Amnon, falls in love with Tamar. And Amnon is obviously deficient, morally lacking, to the point where he lusts after his sister, Tamar, and he he can think of nothing else. And eventually comes up with a plan where he's going to rape her by enticing her to come help him, pretending that he's sick. And he does that. And then the scripture says, so this is the chapter after is covered in the lesson. And the, he, for, he forces her, but then it says he immediately hated her. He hated her even more than he'd loved her before. So he, th- he thinks for this whole time, he, he, he obsesses over it for presumably months because he's, his friends are even noticing you look pale, you look thin, you're not eating, what's wrong? And... Then he hates her after he forces her. Then he hates her even worse than he loved her. And she says, before he rapes her, she says, look, talk to David. Maybe he'll 
allow us to marry. Please don't force me. And, and he does it anyway. And then when he's about to kick her out, she says, this is even worse than you forcing me, that you're going to shame me. And he doesn't listen to her and kicks her out of the house and locks her outside. And she is just heartbroken, as you may imagine, and rents her clothes and pours ashes on her head. And her brother Absalom, who's one of David's sons, probably David's most beloved son, finds out about it. And he tells her, look, don't worry, you know, let's keep our peace over this thing because he's the king's son. But secretly, Absalom has murder in his heart. And the king should have, the, the penalty for this sort of thing should have been death in ancient Israel. First of all, incest. And second of all, rape. The Amnon should have been, the penalty should have been death. But how could David decree, now, now David is in a difficult situation because if he enforces the law, he, he's a hypocrite. So Amnon is free to move about. He doesn't lose anything because of what he's done, even though David finds out about what has happened. And David was actually a party to this because Amnon, when he pretends he's sick, he t he, David is the one that he asked to send Tamar to his house. Well, Absalom waits two years for his revenge, but then there's a there's a, an event, that a party that Absalom hosts, and eventually when all the king's sons are come to this party, then he has his servants kill Amnon in the middle of it. And then Absalom flees. And because of, because of the separation between Absalom and the king, uh, David, the rest of David's life is filled with strife. Event, eventually Absalom returns, but he becomes the, he, he's so popular that he becomes the king in David's stead, and he upsets the king. He lures away all of the followers of the king, and he actually kicks David out, and David is forced to flee for his life. He knows that Absalom is going to kill him. And one of the, one of the saddest verses in, the, in all of the scriptures is found at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, the very end, verse 33, when David is lamenting for his son Absalom. And we've talked a, a lot about parallelism and how something will be stated and then restated a little differently. But if it's restated exactly the same, then the meaning changes slightly. And I was going to say, uh, if you are reading this this lesson, the, the recommended reading is eleven through Second Samuel 11 through 12. I would actually recommend reading all the way up to 18 because then you get all the story that I've told you so far. And the very last verse of, of chapter 18 is, the king was much moved. This is when, so Absalom has revolted, David is forced to flee, and then they have this big battle. And David's command goes out, nobody, let's, we got to win this battle, but nobody kill Absalom because he's my son. And Joab is like, why would I do that? This guy is, this guy's the leader of a rebellion, and if I don't kill him, this is just going to happen again. So Joab disobeys orders, and when he finds that Absalom is trapped, he's trying to run away, and he gets stuck in a tree, and he, and he goes and finds him and puts a knife in his ribs while he's helpless. And when David finds out, this is the verse, and he... Um, the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, 
Would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. So you can see all the repetitions in there, and they're exactly the same. And that is just like multiplying in, in the Hebrew tradition. This is multiplying the emotion that would be carried by this. And, it, and this verse is actually not repeated word for word, but in the next chapter. Um, so that was Second Samuel 18.33, and again in 19.4, he has the same lament. And Absalom means, so you remember we talked about the meaning of the word Abigail, the joy of the father. So Abba means father. Absalom means peace of the father. Abba and Shalom or Salom. So the father's peace or my father, my father's peace or my father is peace or I am my father's peace. These are some of the interpretations we could have for Absalom's name. We haven't, we haven't studied in LDS tradition, we haven't studied a lot about Absalom's life. We know David and then we know Solomon, but Absalom was actually David's favorite son, we can tell by the way that he treated him. And the fact that Absalom was the one that everyone else chose to be king, even over David, and in fact was king for a short time. And it seems to me there's an obvious parallel between the relationship and the resolution between David and Absalom and our Heavenly Father and Lucifer. Lucifer, as you may recall, means son of the morning. And this lament, this this heartbreaking cry that David has at finding out his son is dead and he's never going to see him again. I can, and when he says Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, oh my son, my son. He's just weeping, his heart is broken. I imagine that's how our Heavenly Father felt at seeing uh, one-third of the host of heaven just depart and spiritually die. And again, after Absalom's revolt is put down, there's another man named Sheba who revolts, and he steals away ten tribes, which later, a generation or two later, this, this split would be permanent. But David chases after Sheba, and is able to slay him before he's before he spreads his rebellion across the entire nation, and then he reunites the tribes. This is happening throughout the rest of David's life, as Nathan promised, the sword will never depart from thy house. And it's a direct consequence. It's not that these things are randomly popping up. It's a direct consequence of David's behavior. And then as uh, David is about to die, he's so old and feeble that everyone's talking about what you know who's going to be the king when David dies and his son Adonijah begins acting like he's already been chosen as king he starts attracting all the advisors he doesn't kick David out by force the way Absalom did but David has promised to Bathsheba that her son Solomon would be the next king and so there's al- there's almost a bloody battle at the very end of David's life and so that, that's the story of David, that, that, and that takes us through the end of 2 Samuel. And you can see that David's one, this one act of David has, has consequences for the rest of his life. So let's talk about why it was such a big deal. And perhaps before we begin, I should say that we are going to discuss some very sensitive topics today. It's obvious that uh, the, the lesson deals with adultery, so we're going to talk about lust, we're going to talk about adultery, we're going to talk about sexual purity and chastity, 
and these are sensitive topics. If you have children, you might prepare them for that. And you may be uncomfortable listening to this with a group of friends. This might be something you want to listen to on your own, but it's it's something that I have worked. Normally, I can prepare and record in a shorter time than I can on this lesson. It took me all week to work on this, and I gathered information and preparation from a number of sources, and I've been working very hard on it. And I think it everything that I'm going to say is going to be super important, but it's also uh, of a sensitive nature, so that's worth keeping in mind as we shift from my summary of David's reign in the second half of his life to the actual lesson, which focuses more heavily on David's encounter with Bathsheba and the consequences of that. Uh, first of all, obviously, it wasn't just adultery, it was murder. And it wasn't just murder, it was murder of several people. And it wasn't just murder of several people, it was murder of several people by the person that, that was in charge. So David had a greater responsibility towards the people he governs. Uriah wasn't going to refuse uh, an order from David. So if, if I, as a private citizen, want to kill someone, I can't send him to battle where he will be killed. Uriah had no choice but to go be killed because of David's position. And much, as, much, much like a priest carrying the name of God in vain, he causes people to sin, even if they're trying to do the right thing. David forced Uriah to be murdered, even though he was trying to do the right thing. So it's much worse than simple murder. Secondly, let's, so now that brings us to uh, the topic of what caused all of this. Now, unfortunately for David, he didn't have the New Testament like we do. And I'm going to take a lot of the ideas of what I, what I talk about next from Tim Mackey's excellent podcast, Exploring My Strange Bible, specifically the, the episode on June 10th, which is Matthew part 7 of his Matthew series about Jesus and sexual desire. And he talks specifically about the Sermon on the Mount, and I think it has a lot to do with what David went through. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is Matthew chapter 5. First, let's go back to, when we, as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, let's go back one generation and talk about Saul. So Jesus says, Six times he says, you have heard that it has been said to them of old time, don't do this. Obey this commandment. For example, you've, you've heard that it has been said to them of old time, do not kill. Well, I say unto you, do not be angry with your brother. So Jesus, the, the first thing he comes out and says is, I think not that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. As a side note, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's talking about the when the Hebrews said law, they meant Torah, which is the five books of Moses. And when they said prophets, they meant specific books in what we would call the Old Testament. The Jews divide the Old Testament into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Or the Torah, the Nevi'im, which is prophets, and Ketuvim, which is writings. And the word, so one of the words the Hebrews have for their Bible is T-N-K, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, or Tanakh. So if you ever hear Tanakh, that also means Bible or Old Testament. Just a little side note. So Jesus says, Think not that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets. In fact, I haven't come away 
I haven't come to do away or abolish any of them, but to fulfill them. And to prove it, he talks about how you've heard that this is the commandment, but I'm going to tell you not to do away with that. No, he did. And so Jesus, what Jesus says is, it's okay for you to kill someone. He says, we're going to take it one step further. And this is the way that he fulfills these commandments. He doesn't fulfill them by doing away with them. He fulfills them by perfecting them, making them whole. And at the very end of all of these commandments, he says, be, the, be, the, be ye therefore perfect. In other words, these, this is the way these commandments are fulfilled or perfected. And if you, do, if you do the original commandments of Moses, you'll be good. But if you do all of my commandments, you'll be perfect. And Jesus' commandment about anger applies perfectly to Saul. Saul's particular sin was that he grew angry with David. He couldn't control his temper. And that anger grew inside him to the point where he tried several times to kill David with a javelin. And then he spent years, the last years of his life, hunting David, trying to murder him. So this murder grew in his heart until it became a physical act. And then, and so David and Saul were different, but Christ had a sin he talked about that applied particularly to Saul. What kind of man was Saul? Saul was an idolatrous man. And the sin of idolatry was kind of like, well, well, let's, let's start by describing it in its time. The sin of idolatry was socially acceptable in ancient Israel. The sin of adultery was punishable by death. But idolatry, even though it was one of the Ten Commandments, everybody was doing it. And that was Saul's sin. Saul's sins were anger and idolatry. And David's sin, on the other hand, was lust. And that's the next thing that Christ talks about. He says, you've heard it been said by them of old time, do not commit adultery. But I say that whoso looketh upon a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And this was David's sin. Now, unlike their time, unlike ancient Israel, the sin of idolatry today would be totally socially unacceptable, but the sin of lust is 100% socially acceptable. For example, if somebody is, let's say, extraordinarily successful with members of the opposite sex, then they wouldn't be scorned, they wouldn't be stoned as they would have been in ancient Israel or killed. We kind of think they're cool. And we, by we, I don't mean Latter-day Saints, but we as society in general, pop culture especially, oh, that guy is really, he's really good at getting the ladies, or that lady is really attractive, all the men want to be with her. This kind of thing is very socially acceptable. And in all of the media that we look at, it's one of the most desirable qualities is to be sexually attractive. So in... The, there's a contrast here. There's a natural contrast. If you if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you contrast David with Saul, you can see that Saul's sin was the one that was socially acceptable in their time, and David's sin was the one that's socially acceptable in our time. And therefore, we have a lot more to learn by examining David's sin. Obviously, it's important to control your temper and not allow murder to take root in your heart but it's probably more important, it's probably more needful to examine David's sin and not allow lust to take root in our heart. Let's talk a little bit about lust.
uh, lust is, well, well, let's first learn what Christ said about it. So he says, whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her. Now this word look, uh, this is one of the times when it might be fun for you to go to Bible Hub and go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, and then click on the little Greek link there and look at the Greek word and then click on the word look. And then when you get to that page, over on the upper right, there's a link to Strong's, and it'll give you a number of the Greek word, and the word is blepo. So the word look doesn't just mean um, glance at someone. The, the word that is used in this particular verse, and you can read this right on Bible Hub, uh, blepo carries the connotation to see, to see something physically, but then to carry it into the spiritual realm in order to make some decision about it. In other words, we're going we're gonna to see something physical, physical with spiritual results. We're going to make a decision and then take action. So to see something in order to inform our choices. And it carries the additional connotation to look at it in a considering way. In other words, we, we're not just glancing at something. So what Christ is saying, perhaps a better way to render the verse would be, whoso stareth at a woman lustfully, and one of, there are several translations. One is to look, looketh on a woman to lust after her, or looketh at a woman lustfully. But one way to render it would be in order to lust after her. In other words, if you look at somebody and you make a choice. So it's the, the, this verse is not saying you look at somebody, you feel desire, you resist the temptation. It's saying you look at someone, you make a choice. You're looking at her in order to fuel a fantasy that you want to feel, then you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. Well, this is a huge issue. It is not understood, and I don't think, as Latter-day Saints, we are anywhere near where we need to be in talking about how important lust is. Um, Important's the wrong word. What a big deal it is to lust. So we hear a lot, and especially as men in the church, in, a, in the priesthood session, it's, it's mentioned quite frequently, we hear a lot about pornography, and obviously we hear a lot about the law of chastity, sexual immorality. We do hear that lust is a, that lust is a sin, we should repent of it, and we think, oh, well, I felt some lust, I'm, you know, boys will be boys, or this sort of thing happens, and then we, uh, we repent of that, and that's easy, and it's the, it's the physical acts that come into the world, it's when we, when we act on it, that's when it becomes bad. But Christ is saying just the opposite. Christ is saying lust is actually a huge deal. And to talk about what a huge deal it is, then he follows up this verse by saying, if thine eye offend thee, cut it out and cast it away from thee. Because it's better to go into heaven with one eye than to go into hell seeing with both eyes. If, if, if thy hand offends thee, cut it off. That now, using this is metaphorical language because Christ has already said where the problem is. He didn't say the problem is in your hand or your eye. He said the problem is in your heart. And you remember earlier we read those two verses from the book of Jacob, where Jacob says, I can perceive your thoughts, and I know the wickedness you've already conceived in your hearts. So some of the men that Jacob were talking to may not have yet even committed sexual indiscretions. He was talking to them about lust. 
And Christ is talking now to his disciples about lust. And he's saying that it is better for you to give up something precious. Now, in the, in the scriptures, the hands, the eyes, the, in, and the feet are often used as metaphors to talk about the way we perceive the world and the way we act in the world and then what carries us through our life's path. Which, so that's our eyes, our hands, and our feet. And he's saying, it's better for you to give up something precious, even something indispensable like an eye or a hand. And, and not just any hand, but your right hand, your right eye. So your dominant hand, your dominant eye, the very thing that allows you to see and perceive the world, the thing that allows you to interact with the world, it's better for you to lose that, something precious and even indispensable, irreplaceable, and cast it away as if it were worth nothing. It's better for that to happen than for you to have this sin, even if it's only in your heart. And that should give us a little bit of perspective on how terrible a thing lust is. Why is that? Well, when Christ talks, so let's, we're going to spend now a few more minutes uh, talking about why lust is such a, such a damaging choice to make spiritually. First of all, Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount talking about the law, referring to it directly, and he often referred to what the, what the Hebrews had as their Bible. And page one of the Hebrew Bible, he, he would refer to the creation quite often. Page one of the Hebrew Bible is God beginning the creation of the earth, and each time he finishes one of his creation periods, he looks back and says, God looked at what he'd created and saw that it was good. And when he finishes creating man and woman, and it says he created them in his own image, male and female created he them. So he looked at their bodies, and it's a, it's a Greek ideal that took root in the early Christian era, that there must be something wrong with our flesh. If, if Christ is talking about you've got to cut off your body, you've got to cut off your eye in order to avoid lust, there must be something wrong with our bodies. But actually, God looked at the bodies of man and woman, of Adam and Eve, their gendered bodies, and he saw that they were good. And not only good, he used a different term to describe that period of creation than he had used before that point. They were very good. So God approved of the bodies of Adam and Eve and their procreative powers and their gender, their sexual capabilities, and he didn't just think it was good, he thought it was very good. Jesus, in his, in his creative, in his formative years, in his um, upbringing, would have every year in synagogue heard the, the in, there's an entire book in Jesus' Bible that deals with sexual passion, which is the Song of Solomon. And, and Jesus would have heard this read in synagogue during the days of Passover, every year. And so this is a sort of thing it's celebrated. And in that, in that book, it is very good. So sex is good. Our bodies are good. The powers that we have, the procreative powers are good. Sexual passion even is good. And it's not just uh, people talking about love as an abstract. They're talking about their sexual desires for each other and how they, uh, they look forward to, to being a covenant, members of the covenant together, making covenants with each other. And 
in the last verse of the, and it's the story of a, a woman and a, a shepherd, they're, you know, they're contemplating their love. And in the last verse of, or the, sorry, the last chapter of Song of Solomon, the, it's, it's, it's a poem. This is, a, this is an extended poem about romantic love. And in verse 6, middle, halfway through verse 6, Love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And this would have been a scripture that Jesus grew up with. It would have been a poem probably that he had memorized. So Jesus didn't think that love was bad or that body was bad or that sex was bad or even that sexual desire was bad. Jesus was trying to give the, the truth, get the truth across to the Israelites that we have within us. Let me back up a little further. I've made a, great, I've made a big deal about, in, in previous lessons, about my interpretation of the meaning of Jehovah, which is, he shall cause to become, or he shall cause to exist. In other words, God is a creator and a shaper. He chose the name Jehovah because he wants to get across to us that he is the creator and he is the shaper or the enabler. He can change us into something different. He can make us anew. So he creates us and then he can recreate us. And the ultimate expression of the, of the name of God is Jehovah Elohim. He will cause us to become gods. That is the literal translation of, of Jesus's name. Well, I would suggest there's one more level it could be taken to, which is Jehovah, Jehovah. He will cause us to become those who will cause to become. He wants us to be like him. It means that we can create as well. He will create the creators. And there is no clearer evidence of that than in our procreative powers. So those very body parts that we use when we lust, that we use to inspire lust, those are the parts that have the, the power to create or nurture new life. Let's go back to the, the verse where he says, Who, Whoso looketh upon a woman to lust after her. This is a choice. The, the kind of looking that we're doing has to be chosen because it's something, it's, a, it's an extended gaze we're taking something from the physical world into the spiritual world in order to prompt us to act. And the action that we're doing is fueling our fantasy. So we're taking these body parts and we're, we're dehumanizing the person. We're taking a creator, someone in the image of God, a potential creator at the very least, and we're reducing them to the, those, those body parts that, are, that have the greatest like, likeness to our Father in Heaven, or our Mother in Heaven. And we're saying, I'm going to reduce you to these parts. You have become, you've ceased to be a human. You've ceased to become an image of God. But you are an object that is fuel for my fantasy. And I'm going to do the animal thing, the natural man thing, which is reduce pain and increase pleasure. And that's all you are to me. And in, so, and in dehumanizing you, I dehumanize myself. I no longer believe that I'm a creator. So David, this man who had shown up in front of Goliath and said, you come to me with a, 
with armor and a spear and a sword, and I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. This same person, this same man, was the same man who was able to dehumanize himself to the point where he would not only sleep with another man's wife, but hide the sin, kill the man, and not care that he had killed several others in the process, and only be called to repentance when a prophet of God forced him to do it. That is, the, that is exactly how serious lust is. This didn't happen because David, because Bathsheba was the best-looking woman in the world. It happened because David was willing to dehumanize her and dehumanize himself. And also it happened because Bathsheba was, was willing to do the same. Christ's point is that it's obviously it's terrible to commit adultery. And again, he didn't say, don't keep this commandment that they've been told of olden times. I want you to go one step further. I don't want you to stop keeping it. I want you to keep it more fully. I want to fulfill the law, not abolish it. And so upstream of adultery is lust. Upstream of murder is anger. But that's where the damage, the real damage is done. Like, like Jacob said, we talked about those verses in Jacob. I see the sins in your hearts. I see the thoughts of your minds that you are beginning to commit sin. We don't know how many of them were actually engaging in the sin that Jacob was describing. But some of them were engaging in these, in these sexual sins, and some of them had them forming in their hearts. But it was the hearts that Jacob was addressing. So is God suggesting that we should literally dismember ourselves? No. And there are a couple of reasons why we can be sure of that. Number one, he already talked about where the adultery has occurred when we lust after someone. It has occurred in the heart. So he's not talking physically. He's using these body parts as a metaphor. Cut out your eye, cut off your hand. Something that's indispensable is the, in the way that we move through the world. Now, in the, in the poem we read, um, Love is as strong as death, it's jealousy, unyielding as the grave, from the Song of Solomon, burns like blazing fire. Love, and this is, there's talking specifically about romantic love or sexual passion. It's likened to a fire. And so the question of whether sexual passion is good, I said it was good, but it's the wrong question. The question is the same as asking, is fire good? It's a complicated question. Every one of you listening to this is doing it on a device that at some point has been powered by fire. The electricity of your MP3 player, your phone, your device, your computer, your tablet is coming from fire somewhere. Even if you have solar power or are you're getting your power from a hydroelectric dam, those things are powered by the sun. And the sun is the biggest fire of all. So is fire good or bad? If fire is set at indiscriminate is used indiscriminately, it could be overwhelmingly destructive, both to the person who wields it and everyone around him. And 
that's exactly like burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. This is a quote that's very popular with the general authorities, which is, it's from Will and Ariel Durant. A youth boiling with hormones will wonder why he should not give full freedom to his sexual desires. And if he is unchecked by custom, morals, or laws, he may ruin his life before he matures sufficiently to understand that sex is a river of fire. There's that metaphor again. That must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group. Now notice they didn't say it's got to be put out. It's got to be extinguished. It's got to be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints. So is fire bad? No, fire is good. Fire is powering everything that you and I are doing together. Our entire interaction is powered by fire. It could not exist without it. It's the most wonderful gift mankind has. It powers our cars. We create millions of tiny controlled fires in our engines just to go from point A to point B. Every minute we have thousands of revolutions in our engines. And that multiply that by the number of pistons and the number of minutes that you're traveling. And you have millions of fires that get you anywhere. You have tons of fire powering all the electricity that you use. To keep your food cold requires fire. So fire is an amazing gift. And only when it's controlled. There are wildfires in England right now that are making the entire country look like the post-apocalyptic stuff of nightmares. It's so easy to see the gifts of fire when it's controlled and the curse of fire when it's not. So that is another metaphor that Jesus would have been very familiar with because of his probable, his familiarity at least, and probably memorization of the Song of Solomon. He would have known that metaphor as well, that this is exactly what lust is. This is, or not lust, this is exactly what sexual passion is. Uncontrolled, it's lust. And it is overwhelmingly destructive, not just to the person who wields it, but to everyone. And when it is controlled, then it is the very holiest thing. Now, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and his attitude towards sexual desire shows that he's, he has the most respect for it. We think that today, because it's so socially acceptable to lust and to receive lust, that Christianity is puritanical, they don't understand lust, they don't have respect for freedom, for the expression that should exist between men and women. And Jesus is showing by this, by, by pointing out what a big deal lust is, he's showing us that he has the real respect for sexuality, which is that it is not to be taken lightly. And when it is expressed and enjoyed within a covenant relationship, then it bonds heart and mind and soul and body into one, and it creates creators. It performs God's work by turning us into the creators that he wants us to be. In fact, it's a necessary part of God's plan. It can't be done any other way. And it's so sacred that Christ is making a huge deal out of it by talking about it's actually better to dismember yourself. There's another reason we know he wasn't speaking literally, and that's because if he's talking about 
dismembering ourselves, there's there's an important thing that he left out, and I, I'm just going to leave it there. But yeah, if he if he wanted to if he wanted to seriously recommend that, he would have said something different. No reason to discuss that any further. But we can know that he's speaking metaphorically. Now, let's go over some statistics. It is pretty clear that somewhere north of 75%, probably 80% of men in the world, I don't know the exact statistics in the U.S., but it, it's fairly close. These are, these are people with access to broadband internet. 80% of men and maybe a third of that of women have looked at pornography in the last month. Pornography exists for no other purpose than to incite lust. So that is the, that is the hold that Satan has over the world. Now, much has been made, made of a certain study that said that Utah has the highest subscriptions of, of porn of all 50 states. Um, and a lot of Mormons have taken that to mean that uh, the church is as bad as the world. The, the evidence of that study, first of all, that study is not peer-reviewed or cited anywhere. It cannot be reproduced. Secondly, it's, it's, contra- it's contradicted by a few others. Nevertheless, studies of Christian populations show that their statistics are not far off. Um, instead of 79% of men, it's more like 77 So let's say that we are... As, as LDS people, we're as far below the Christian mainstream Christian population as they are below the mainstream population. That would still put us, they're only 2% below. That would put us at 75% of men and 25% of women. Now in the UK, among college students, it's over 50% of women have a pornography history within the last month. In Denmark, it's 33% of all women. So this problem is no longer a strictly male problem. And it's not even a problem to so many. They don't see it as an issue. They don't see it as an addictive behavior. They don't see it as a sin. And that is one of Satan's great victories. However, Jesus was speaking mostly to men. He said, Whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And historically, men have been the greatest perpetrators of lust, and women have been the victims. And what God is saying is, it is intensely important for me, as I'm, when, as Jesus is preaching about what it means to live in the kingdom. Be ye therefore perfect. These are the kind of people that will create Zion. He's saying, I will create a place. If you want to be part of it, you can. I will create a place where it's safe to be a woman, where women are safe from lust. And that's because the men that are there have respect for the creative powers, and they see themselves through God's eyes, and they see women as in the image of God. That's it. That is the kind of place that Zion is. And there is no room there for lust of any, car, of any kind. In other words, the heart is the most important place. It's not the least important. So in our world today, we live in a fallen world. 
Of course, it's easier to repent if the sin exists solely in your mind. Once you've acted on it, it's much harder to repent. But the sin is the same. What Christ is saying is the heart is where these terrible things begin. And I think in the church, if we made a lot bigger deal out of teaching our youth, when you lust, it is huge. It is a huge problem. And you need to learn to stop lusting before before you ever even worry about pornography or about fornication or about adultery. You need to learn to cut out lust out of your life. Let's start there. Let's go all the way back there. That is the mission that needs to exist within all of our youth programs. And it does to some extent, but Jesus' Jesus's vision was far more ambitious than what we currently take on, I believe. And David didn't have the benefit of the Sermon on the Mount. But it's interesting that Saul and David are both represented in the commandments that Christ is talking about in his Sermon on the Mount. Let's, let's have a final note here that the, the title of the lesson is Create in Me a Clean Heart. And one of the scriptures of the lesson is Psalm 51. And this is the psalm that David writes immediately after Nathan confronts him with his sin. And he realizes how terrible it is what he's done. Now these, to some extent, are the pains of hell. Because David can't bring Uriah back from the dead. But as far as the adultery goes, so he, he can't fully repent of his murder. But as far as the adultery goes, this is exactly the right thing to say. And I, I recommend highly reading the entire psalm. It's not too long. But the point is, David, the, the, the sad part for David is he gets it. Remember that Saul was waiting for Samuel to show up and got impatient and performed a sacrifice. And Samuel arrived and said, to be obedient is better than sacrifice. And faithfulness is better than the fat of rams. In this psalm, David says, Thou desirest not a sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. So David shows that he knows that it's in the heart that is the important battle fought and the important sacrifice made. And the fact that he knows it is makes it all the more sad that he was that his transgression was so full. And and this should show us that a the a sin like lust can bring even if it's if it's not if the battle is not fought in the heart and won there, it can bring even someone like David from his exaltation. There is no prophet in all of Scripture who could not have been brought low by listening, paying heed, or succumbing to the temptation of lust. And that is irrespective of whether they ended up doing what David did. But if they had just lusted, then Satan would have won a victory over every single one of them. Any person in the Scriptures, any person that you know, if they don't and, and in verse 10 of Psalm 51, David says, Create in me a clean heart, 
O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now the point is we've got to win this battle in our heart. And anytime this subject comes up, a lot of people feel tons of guilt because nobody's perfect in this area. And feeling guilt is not the worst thing in the world, as long as you don't let that be the end of the story. And here's the good news. With Christ in the picture, it is never the end of the story. There is no end of the story with Jesus. He has provided everything we could possibly need to create a clean heart. As David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. So, we all have a weakness in this area. Now, let me talk a little bit about the difference between men and women. Men are tempted, and this is in the aggregate. There will be individuals that do not fit this description. So if this doesn't apply to you, then please disregard it. But in general, men feel lust for women and desire them sexually, and women feel the lust of men. So the way a woman feels lust is to receive it. And this is what Bathsheba did. She inspired the lust of David. She took pleasure in knowing that David wanted her, lusted after her. So if, let's talk a little bit about what our eyes, our metaphorical eyes are that we can cut off and what our metaphorical hands are that we can cut off in order to cast them away and not lose our chance at heaven. Uh, how do we, what, what means do we use to lust after people? Well, maybe it's our broadband internet. It's something that's indispensable, indispensable to us. It's a means we use to move through the world, to see and perceive the world. Maybe it's our smartphone. Maybe it's our social media account. Those, that's just the beginning of thinking about what it might be. Maybe it's the way we interact with people in the workplace. Maybe it's a certain friendship. And I say social media account because there's another form of lust that is a little bit less well-known. And this is engaged in by both men and women, and it's comparison. If we reduce someone to the way they look and then compare ourselves to them unfavorably and think, I'm not attractive, isn't it, isn't it true that we've accomplished all of, the, all of Satan's goals with lust without actually engaging in sexual desire? We've dehumanized the other person, reduced them to an object, and we've also reduced ourselves We've taken the divine creator out of our own nature, and we've said, I am worth only how good-looking I am. And so comparing ourselves and saying that I'm unattractive sexually and therefore worthless is also a form of lust. And we need to cut that away as well and discard it. And if that means we have to cut off our social media account and discard it, then so be it. It's better to go into heaven with no Facebook page than it is to go into hell with 5,000 friends. Many of you listening to me, most of you, have a bishop. Everyone listening to me has the light of Christ. And if there is a sexual sin, if there is, even if it's just lust, even if it only exists in your heart, every one of you has access to the means to have Christ take that from you. 
God can create in you a clean heart, and it may involve a conversation with an ecclesiastical leader, and it may involve a prayer between you and God, and it may involve a process where you learn about the ties that the the hooks that lust has driven into you and what it will take to get them out. But no matter what that process is, no matter what that hand or that eye might be, cut it off, get rid of it, start that process now, today. We have a limited time in this life. As David found out, David did not realize the night that he sent for Bathsheba that this was the last peaceful time he would enjoy in his whole life. And you may not realize that by continuing to lust or by failing to repent, or I may not realize by failing to repent, that this is the last peaceful time I will enjoy. Until Nathan came to him and said, the sword will never depart from your house. And so let's not procrastinate the day of our repentance, especially on this most important of topics. This is the one thing that makes us the most like God this is the thing that allows him to create in us a creator to make us truly in the image of God where we can make someone else who is also in the image of God that is a godlike activity which is to create another being that will himself or herself become a person capable of creating creators and the process never ends This is why God puts such a high value upon posterity is because these are the blessings where we create the most. It's multiplying forever. So let us respect that gift. Let us be willing to change our hearts and allow Christ to create in us a clean heart. Give unto him a sacrifice that is worthy of his sacrifice and allow him to create in us, a creator. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.